This Bible reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The next Bible reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, found on page 1837. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, well, um, thanks very much, uh, Emily and Robin. Um, And as I said, it's been lovely being with you these last three weeks and a real privilege and delight to see uh, this new church in the Trinity Network as it's uh, started and got underway and is on about reaching this part of Adelaide. Uh, can I ask you, um, as we do get started, to take out this little insert. So as in previous weeks, a detailed outline, lots of space to take notes, blanks that you need to fill in to keep you following along um, as we uh, try and wrap up this very short series on this topic of guidance. Uh, yeah, actually, if you need handouts, you can grab them from out there. Uh, okay, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so you'll see that little handout. Now, um, let me just remind you of what we've covered in these last few weeks. Uh, in the first week of the series... Uh, we looked at God's sovereign will for all things, that is, that everything be brought under the lordship of the Lord Jesus. Uh, And last week, we spent some time reflecting on how we know what God's moral will is, that is, how he wants each of us to live, even though, sadly, many choose not to. And we saw last week that his moral will is revealed, uh, first and foremost, in his word. 
course, the problem is knowing God's moral will for your life doesn't mean you'll actually do it. Uh, and that's what this talk is all about. Where I want to start is with the question at the top of your page, what do you like with instruction manuals? Now, it seems to me there's two types of people in the world when it comes to instruction manuals. Uh, you know, when uh, you get that shiny new phone uh, that uh, you've just bought, uh, there's two types of people in terms of what they do with it. On the one hand, there are those who open the new box carefully, they tear off the cellophane on the outside, uh, they carefully pull out everything with a sort of tender, reverent kind of worship, just touching it, it's like it's their precious. Uh, and then they're the kind of people who pour over the instruction manual, read through every single page from cover to cover, even do that initial first charge of 12 hours before turning it on. And then there's the rest of us. Uh, the rest of us who, of course, we get the new thing, we rip the box open, uh, we just start pushing buttons, we ignore the instruction manual entirely because everyone knows that instruction manuals are for losers. Now, there are risks, of course, with this particular strategy. Uh, I discovered this uh, in a different kind of context. There should be a picture on the screen behind me, hopefully, at this point. No, maybe the picture didn't get through. Let me tell you about the time in which... Uh, when Wendy and I had just started dating and uh, Wendy bought some baskets to be assembled in her bedroom to keep her clothes in. And I thought this is the perfect opportunity to display all my manly ability and that I'd put it together for her. Now, any of you who know anything about me know that that was a bad, bad path to take. Uh, so, sure enough, I assembled the whole thing to discover that I put it together in such a way that you couldn't put the drawers in and you couldn't remove it either. So her dad's watching on, thinking, who is this moron of a new boyfriend that she's got? At that point, I just summed up all the pride that I had, which wasn't much. I threw them in the bin, I went to the store and bought a new one and brought it back and did it right this time. There are risks in avoiding the instruction manual, of course, uh, as we all know to our shame. Now, in case the extended illustration isn't obvious, the Bible is God's instruction manual. The Bible is God's instruction manual. It shows us what His moral will is for our lives. But even if you are willing to read it properly, knowing what it is isn't the same as doing it. There's two reasons in particular. The first is that if all the Bible is for you is a series of protocols that you're meant to follow without question, uh, kind of like a robot, you'll only ever be motivated to follow it as long as you think you'll get better outcomes from doing so than if you choose a different path. The problem, of course, for us is that we live in a world that consistently screams to us that God's way is not the best for us. And I think that means inevitably even Christians are forced to ask, does the Bible really spell out the best way to live? Most people today, of course, make decisions based not on what they think is right or wrong, but on how they feel about something. And so, this has led to the rise of so-called liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity, which in the end says that God's Word is only culturally relevant to us today. The second problem is that if all the Bible to you is to use a series of protocols that you're meant to follow blindly, uh, kind of like a robot, it robs you of any freedom to develop, robs you of any opportunity to express yourself, any opportunity to change, any reason to use your mind. Instead, what you're told is just 
blindly obey it. Just blindly obey it. And sadly, that's the leading edge of fanaticism, fundamentalism. The problem with how-to guides and instruction manuals in the end, uh, when it comes to decision-making, is that they only ever prescribe the bare minimum that you need to pass. Whereas, well, love your neighbour as yourself. It ought be limitless. What we need in the end is a change of heart, uh, not just an instruction manual. So, let's see what it is. Point one on your handout. God's moral will for your life, your... And here's the blank for you to fill in. The word is going to sound strange, but just write it down anyway. The word is your holification. Your holification. H-O-L-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Now, I've just made that word up. None of you have ever heard of it. The holification. Or the word actually that you see in the Bible is sanctification. But I want you to write down the word holification because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's the word that's actually being used. Now, it's not translated that way because we don't have that word in English, but that's actually what the word means. And when I point that out to you, it'll help you understand what's going on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3, it is God's will that you should be, well, it says sanctified, but actually the word is that you should be made holy, you should be holified. Again, sounds a bit weird in our language, but maybe it'll make it, it'll stick in your mind because throughout this passage, the word holy comes up another three times. It's God's will that you should be sanctified or holified, verse 3. Verse 4, control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Verse 7, God did not cause to live an impure, but to live a holy life. And verse 8, the God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Four times in five verses, the word holy is used. Now, the word holy has a range of meanings in the Bible. Sometimes it can mean to be set apart. Sometimes it can, be mean, it can mean uh, to be special. Uh, the word that we most commonly associate with holy is godly, to be like God. Or, as we see consistently in the New Testament, to be like Jesus to be like Jesus, uh, to be conformed to His image, uh, which is the language from Romans chapter 8. This is God's will for your life, that you be made holy, that you be made like Jesus. question is, of course, how does God go about achieving this? How does God make us to be more like Christ? And part of the problem is that, well, at least for many of us, before we became Christians, we wanted to live a good and moral life. We just weren't particularly capable. So what makes you think that now you'll be any different? What makes you think that just because you've put your trust in Jesus that the outcome will change in any way from the past unless... Something has changed. The change actually has to take place within you. What we need in the end is what's called a change agent. Something in us that will cause us to operate differently from the way in which we did before. That brings us then to point two, God's change agent in your life. The blank for you to fill in here is 
His Holy Spirit. It's His Holy Spirit. Verse 8. Anyone who instructs, uh, sorry, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now notice how verse 8 is describing the Holy Spirit. It's describing the Holy Spirit as a gift. As a gift not just to us, it's actually a gift placed in us. Because it's His Holy Spirit who is the agent of our holification. And in the New Testament, that's the reason why we can act differently as believers. The contrast, of course, is with God's Old Testament people, those who are before the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had God's instruction manual, they had the law, they tried to keep it, and time and time again they failed. And that's the reason why the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that great day when God would put a new heart and a new spirit in His people, that they might be able to do what God wanted. And for that reason that uh, God's Holy Spirit has been called, I've I've put the phrase there for you because I think it's such a a lovely, elegant phrase. Uh, One New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, has called the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. Isn't that a lovely way of describing God's change agent? He is present in us and He empowers us to act differently from the way before. Now, this is absolutely wonderful. It's wonderful because, actually, if you want to change someone's behaviour, you need more than just good resolutions and intentions. You need, actually, something to be different. You need to not just get rid of the old, you need to replace it with something newer, something better. You'll say I've made a reference there on your handout to Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish theologian in the um, 19th century. And uh, he wrote a very, very famous essay once called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What his argument was, was that if as a Christian, uh, your goal to live a holy life is simply about putting to death the old life, well, that'll work for a time, but it will keep coming back. What you need is more than just a resolution to ignore something, you actually need something better to live for, something different within you that's changing your behaviour. He called this a new affection and he says it has expulsive power to drive out the old ways. It's a brilliant insight. Uh, In fact, you'll find on the table as you leave a copy of the article, just like that. So grab it, I've, uh, well, I was saying I've printed it, I clearly haven't printed it, someone else printed it, uh, but I've arranged for that to be printed for you to take away. Uh, It's not that long, but, and it's sort of in old-fashioned English, but it's worth reflecting on because as is so often the case, we have much to learn from those who've come before us. Now, a different way of putting this is the little picture there that's uh, down there. Now, you've probably been looking at that picture, as you do often throughout these talks. Oh, there was the picture of the baskets. There you go. It's on the handout. The baskets I was talking about, it's all on the screen. The picture down here, let me explain this picture. Um, some of you will know what this is. This is the startup screen for a computer. I thought I'd tell you about one of my colleagues who I work with, who is uh, in that very peculiar category of people known as utter, utter geek. Uh, so, he's, he's in the supreme, uh, extreme end, you know, the kind of people who are such hardcore purist geeks that, of course, anything like Apple is considered to be anathema to them, you know. 
wash your mouth out if you even say such things. Uh, like all geeks, they probably thinks that Apple is evil, they thinks that Windows is evil, and those kinds of things. Uh, but of course, the problem is that uh, even if you are a hardcore computer geek, well, quite frankly, if you're a hardcore computer geek and you look at those beautiful Macintoshes, you just think, they're so sexy, I want one of them. So here's what he did. He went and bought himself a new Apple laptop, but because, of course, he's a hardcore computer geek, he can't possibly sell out to evil Apple corporations. So what he did was that he replaced the operating system on it, not even with Windows, but with Linux? Linux, I don't even know how to say it properly. Linux. The geeks like Andy know what I'm talking about at this point. So when you turn the computer on, it doesn't look like a Mac on the screen. It looks, there's all these numbers and digits flying, flying across the screen. Now that's pretty obsessive, isn't it? Um, what's the point of the illustration? The point is now, what looks like an Apple laptop actually behaves very differently because what's within has been changed. If God has put his Holy Spirit in us, can you see, at last we have a hope that we might live the holy life that we want to, but that we couldn't accomplish on our own. Well, let me spend the rest of the time then at point three. What does it mean for us to be conformed to the image of Christ? This being the most basic definition of being holy, that is to be like Jesus. Uh, and I've given you the reference there from Romans 8, verse 29, at the bottom of the page. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Turn over the page, I want to say three things. The first is, what is God actually doing in your life? What is God actually doing in your life? Well, if God has given you His Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of Jesus, it means that God's primary work is in you, not external to you. God's primary work is in you, not external to you. That is, the main thing that God is doing in your life is changing your character and your convictions, even before He alters any of your circumstances. He's changing your character and your convictions, even before He alters any of your circumstances. Think about what the work of the Holy Spirit is described as in the New Testament, what the fruit of the Spirit is. They're all character, uh, character descriptions. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What does that mean? Well, a couple of thoughts. Uh, the first is, I think that means that when it comes to God's moral will... What God wants is for us to make choices that will help us become more like Jesus. God wants us to make choices that will help us to become more like Jesus. Now, what does that mean, you say? Well, have a look at the quote I've given you there on your handout. Now, this is from Kevin DeYoung, American uh, preacher, writer, pastor, who's written a, quite, a pretty good book called Just Do Something. 
<laughs> on guidance, just do something. Uh, it's not a bad book. If you're into, oh, by the way, I haven't said anything about books throughout this series. If you're into books, this is as good as any. It's short, so that's good. Um, and it's, you know, he addresses most of the issues. Just a word of warning. He's an American, so apologies to any American brothers or sisters here. There's some parts of it that you just want to ignore. Basically, he says, you know, just do something, which means that if you're a young male, get married, have lots of babies, and get a gun. So, you know, that's kind of like American Christianity. So, ignore that part of it, which is why I don't unanimously recommend it, unequivocally. But he's kind of got a point, just do something, really. That is, he's trying to just help us get over our angst. Anyway, have a look at the quote. The quote is good. Specific step-by-step instruction is not usually how God operates. His way is to show us His holiness, to declare us holy in Christ, and to exhort us to grow in holiness in daily life. That's God's will for you. He wants you to buy, you a, he wants you to buy a house that will make you holy. If you marry, He wants you to get married so you can be holy. He wants you to get a job that will help you grow in holiness. Now, I realise, as you stop and reflect on what he's saying, at one level you think, wow, that's massive, isn't it? Every decision made on the basis of how will it help me to be more like Jesus? Now, the immediate next question that comes to most of us is, what would that look like? What would that actually mean to buy a house that makes me holy? We'll take jobs, for example. I presume there are some professions you can choose that will make you less like Jesus. To be facetious, being a hitman, that probably won't make you more like Jesus, right? But that's a pretty easy one for us to work out. Although, do you get his point? His point is, how do you choose a job, if you can, and not everyone gets to choose their job, but how do you choose a job, if you could, that will help you to become more and more conform to the image of Jesus. Can you see that even wanting to is a very different way of looking at career selection? Most Christians ask, how can I be the best teacher, lawyer, doctor for Jesus? That's not a bad question to ask. But a different and better and prior question is, how does this job help me to be more or less like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, I haven't always been a pastor. I studied economics and law at university. After I graduated, uh, I went and worked uh, for a strategic consulting firm for a number of years. Uh, It was one of those jobs that was very demanding, uh, high-powered, good career opportunities, great career opportunities, in fact. Uh, When I left my job to go to Bible college... I looked back over my timesheets that I'd kept uh, because we had to bill our clients. I I realised with a sinking heart that for three years I'd averaged 75 hours a week. I'd spent two of those three years commuting from Sydney to Melbourne, Brisbane or New Zealand every week for at least three nights. Part of the reason why I left my job was because, well, it took me a while to work this out, though everyone else knew it pretty fast, I found that I was very impatient. In fact, I'd gotten more impatient over the time of my working life, probably because I was working 75 hours a week and every minute was very precious to me. 
asking the question, how does a job help me to be more and more like Jesus? Well, at one level, this is a job that certainly wasn't doing anything to bring out the fruit of patience in my life. Now, you hear that and you think, okay, how does it apply to me? Well, that's the million-dollar question, but it starts with a desire. A desire to want to be more like Jesus in every way. And so, I guess what I'd like to urge you is, here's what I'd like to urge you, before you ever ask God to change your circumstances, first stop and ask God to show you how he's changing your character and your convictions already. Ask him to show you, how are you bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit in my life, even if I can't see it? I'll give you an example. Uh, imagine, if you will, that you walk out after this service to the car park to find that your car has been stolen. Now, this is a really dumb illustration to use because at this point, none of you are going to think about anything except the possibility that maybe your car has been stolen from front of us. But look, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's Malvern and it's a Bible college. People aren't going to steal cars from here. Let's say you go out there and you discover your car has been stolen. What do you pray, assuming that you pray? <laughs> Most of us wouldn't. Most of us would probably shout and pull out our phones. But let's assume that you stop and you think, I've got to pray. What do you pray? Do you ask that God would change your circumstances? That God would return your car to you? Well, sure, why not? I mean, that's a good prayer to pray, right? I don't have anything against that prayer. But will you first ask God... Show me how you might be bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit in my life in this situation. Will you show me how you're changing my character? Maybe you have a struggle with materialism. Maybe you have a preoccupation with your stuff. Perhaps you might realise that one of the ways in which God might lessen your attachment to them is just to take them away. Towards the end of last year, I rang up my aunt who lives in Sydney because I was going to Sydney and I needed a car for a few days. Uh, this is an aunt of mine who's a godly Christian woman, very generous with everything. I knew she was going to be out of town, so I figured I'd just call her and ask if I could borrow a car for a few days so I could drive around in Sydney. I emailed her, and unusually for my aunt, who normally replies within about 13 seconds of me sending something to her, I heard nothing for nearly a week. Until I get a phone call from my aunt, who says, yes, Jeff, you can borrow my car, but only after I tell you the story behind it. So I say, aunt, won't tell you her name, auntie, so-and-so, what's, what's the story? She says, well, when I got your email request, my initial thought was, my car is brand new, and I don't really want to lend it to you. But I felt that probably wasn't the right answer to fire back immediately. So I sat on it for a few days. The funniest thing happened to me. I was driving to the shops and I had an accident. So now the car isn't quite so new anymore. <laughs> and I figured that was God's way of telling me I should lend you my car. <laughs> as a godly aunt of mine, as I said... But can you see that there's a different way to approach your decisions? It's a challenge for us. If you're serious about wanting to be more and more like Jesus, I'm asking you, are you prepared to pray, 
those real character-changing prayers. Here's a different example. Uh, Carl's just given a finance update. Uh, how wonderful it is to see the generosity of God's people in starting a new church. And actually, I've just come from Trinity Church Colonel Like Thousands. Oh, that's catchy. Uh, before I got here, where they did a finance update and said how thankful to God they were that even though a whole bunch of people had left, they were still pretty close to making budget. Wonderful, right? What a great encouragement. I often hear from people when they're confronted with the opportunity to give to a cause of some type, I often hear Christians say, thank you, I'm going to go and pray about my giving. Now, don't mishear me, I know that's an excellent thing to do. That's the right thing to do. It just strikes me that praying about my giving is awfully vague. Maybe instead of just saying, I'm going to pray about my giving, you could say, I'm going to go and pray that God will help me be more generous. That would be a prayer about bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit, about changing your character, wouldn't it? Or if you're feeling really gutsy, you might go and say, I'm going to pray, God, help me be more generous than last year. Well, that's the first thing I want to say. The other two, I'll move much more quickly. In whom is God working? In whom is God working uh, by His Holy Spirit? One of the difficulties of being a new creation, uh, that is, one who's described as being inwardly renewed but outwardly wasting away, uh, is that it's hard to see the image of Christ in us. Uh, Not only in ourselves, actually, but in others. Uh, For that reason, I think we need other people to help us in the process of becoming more like Christ. You saw that back in verse 29... It said that Christ, of Romans 8, it said Christ is the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. I think kind of what it's saying is that it's not just I'm becoming more like Christ, but we are to become more like Christ. And one of the reasons why, therefore, the community of believers is so important in our growth in godliness is because, in the end, any change in character or conviction largely goes to motive. And yet, we need to be realistic about our capacity for self-deception. Another quote there, Thomas Cramner, one of the famous English reformers, here's what he said, What the heart loves, the will does, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will does, and the mind justifies. So here's an example, this might sound familiar. Chocolate is good. I'm going to eat that chocolate. I deserve the chocolate. I can work off the gym with the chocolate tomorrow. It would be rude to refuse God's good gift of chocolate in my life. What the heart loves, the mind does, the will does, and the mind justifies. And so in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, others can help us to work out what we're trying to justify in ourselves. They can help us spot our biases and our blind spots. And so, what I'm proposing here is the question, are you serious enough about wanting to be more like Christ that you'll even ask God to expose your blind spots? Expose them to others who might help you to see them better? 
This church has just started. We pray and trust that under God it will keep growing, which means that soon enough, this will be the church where you come on Sunday and you don't know everyone here well. There's a sadness to that. There's a delight in that we're reaching more people. As that happens, the place of small groups or community groups, whatever name you give them in this particular church, it becomes particularly important. To be one of those places where, alongside a handful of other brothers and sisters, you can see God at work in each other and help sharpen each other. Okay, and thirdly then, how exactly does God work for the good of those who love Him? This is Romans 8 verse 28. Again, you heard this verse before. Uh, Romans 8 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His promise, to His purpose. Now, I'm a big fan of memory verses, actually, um, and this is a favourite amongst Christians. My concern is that most Christians, I think, have mismemorized Romans 8 28. I think most Christians think that Romans 8 28 says, we know that in all good things, God works for the good of those who love Him. But it doesn't say that, does it? It just says, in all things. That means, I think, that even in, dare I say it, suffering, God is still at work for our good. Kevin DeYoung, one last time. If God opens the door for you to do something you know is good or necessary, be thankful for the opportunity. But other than that, don't assume that the relative ease or difficulty of a new situation it's God's way of telling you to do one thing or the other. Remember, God's will for your life is your sanctification. And God tends to use discomfort and trials more than comfort and ease to make us holy. Now, I'm not saying we ought to petition God to increase our suffering. Of course, when it happens, do call on Him to alleviate it. But from Romans 8, our main prayer is, in the face of suffering, God, remind me how you're even using this awful situation to make me more like Christ. I'm struck by the number of times I've spoken to mature Christians, those who've been believers for 50, 60, 70 years of their lives. I'm struck by the number of times when I talk with them how they describe the fact that their faith has grown. Their faith has grown most and their walk with the Lord has been most real and intimate in times of adversity, not in times of prosperity. And I presume the reason for that is because in times of suffering is when we most recognise our need for His grace. What do you think the suffering is that Paul is referring to in Romans 8? Romans 8 verse 18 printed there, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, I think the suffering that Paul is referring to is the agony of not being conformed to the image of Christ yet. That sheer turmoil of wanting to know God's moral will and to do it every single day of your life, but so often failing. It's the anguish, I think, of living in a world that's broken by sin, where Jesus is not yet exalted and glorified 
as he will be forever and ever. Surely that's the suffering that he's describing. That incompleteness that we long for, which one day will be realised in him. And so here I finish this talk in this series, when God's work is complete, I've tried to say throughout these talks, guidance asks, what choice might improve my circumstances? That's not a bad thing to ask for. But gospel-driven guidance asks, how is God conforming me to the image of Jesus, even in this situation? Because here's the thing, God will complete his work one day. I know that doesn't feel like it right now. For some of us, we're even more painfully aware of that than others. Today, we are all works in progress. We are all beta versions. None of us is finished. If you think you are, just come talk with you afterwards. I'll point out your deficiencies. But one day, we will be perfected in Christ. The last image for the series, perhaps this one will be ringing in your mind as you leave. I printed there at the bottom. You recognise this. It's one of the most famous sculptures in the world. It's Rodin's The Thinker. I've put it there because a sculpture, I think, is a good way of describing what we are in the hands of our maker. We're being refined, crafted, refashioned, all the extraneous bits chipped away, until one day, at last, the craftsman, the Lord God himself, he downs tools and he says, I'm finished with Meredith. I'm finished with Pete. I'm finished with Ellie. Because what I've made, it's now worthy of being praised by all of creation. On that day, I take it that not only will we be without sin, we will not even be able to sin. Can you imagine that? Not even thinking of the ability of sin. Don't you long for that day? The first day of a never-ending praise of our God and His name. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. And I pray using our words from a very old hymn. Lord Jesus, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen.